Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Data Center Podcast. We have here with us today Bikash Kolei. He's a CTO at Juniper Networks. Bikash, thank you so much for taking the time to, to speak. Thank you so much, Evgeny. Very nice uh, being here and looking forward to the conversation. Me too. Me too. So, and, and you joined uh, Juniper not too long ago. You, you mentioned 10 months. Uh, from Google, you were there for about a decade. Um, tell us um, before, maybe briefly tell us uh, before Google, how did you end up at Google? What was your yeah. journey So uh, I, um, after grad school, I used to work for Siena, and I worked on uh, building some of the very early DWDM systems and optical switches and so on. Um, and then uh, I did a startup which I co-founded. It was called QStreams Networks. Um, it was um, in the early days of video on demand and Metro Ethernet transport. So it was a networking um, solution for, for that space. Um, I started Google right after uh, Google acquired YouTube. And um, it was in the very early days of uh, infrastructure build out for the company where it was still not really cloud scale. It was just starting to become cloud scale. And uh, in many ways, I have been um, really very fortunate to be right there when the infrastructure was trying to scale to 100x and then 1,000x. Um, and it was a really amazing journey over 10 years in uh, being part of, uh, having the ability to invent, uh, having the ability to drive uh, many of the technologies um, that are now known as cloud scale technologies, like SDN, like NFVI, like uh, building infrastructure as a fabric, um, large scale orchestration systems, large scale automation. Um, I was uh, really fortunate to be in the middle of that for for last one decade. I think I read uh, in an interview you've done before that YouTube was um, part of uh, what kind of took Google's infrastructure to that um, hyperscale. Is that uh, in 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 some ways, you know, as you know, video drives bandwidth, right? And and so um, when when YouTube was acquired, uh, it was uh, it was not on Google's infrastructure, and as it was migrated and the service took off. Um, it, it, it was an amazing scaling experience uh, as, as both the service became popular and people could produce video at higher and higher resolution, right? And it was an ever-increasing bandwidth demand that led to a very different network architecture than what Google had before or what others have built before. Um, so, and tell us, tell us the story of you becoming Juniper CTO. Like, be as specific as possible. Did did a recruiter call you? Was it some friends that worked here? How 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 did that come about? You know, I've I've known Juniper for a long time. I used to I used to know Juniper obviously as um, as a customer for uh, for a long time before um, before I joined Juniper. And um, I have known uh, Rami, who is the Juniper CEO and my boss now, again, for a long time, much before he became Juniper CEO. Um, I have known, you know, Juniper, as you know, had only one CTO in its life before I took this job, which was Pradeep, who founded the company. And I, I have known Pradeep for a long time as well. Um, he is, you know, he is one of the uh, visionaries in networking. Um, and um, so, um, when I got the call uh, from from the recruiter, um, I was surprised in one sense that uh, that uh, you know I'm, I'm 
I have done production network operations. Of course, I've done a lot of uh, development in in that process, but um, it's 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 very different uh, in in terms of what Pradeep was as a CTO and what uh, experiences that 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 I had in in the recent past. Because it's a combination of being intram- because it's entrepreneurial a com- in combination uh, and, with and technologies. Yes, and, and also you know running large scale operations and building operational technology versus. Um, you know, building um, silicon and systems around that. Uh, although, you know, I have to admit that at Google, um, again, of w- one of the amazing part of the journey was it was a it was a very rich mix of uh, build versus buy, and many of those technologies, as you may have seen in public domain, you know, Jupiter, which is Google's uh, data center fabric, B4, which is Google's backbone, Espresso, which is Google's SDN Edge, a lot of it was development. So I'm, I have always been very close to development, as I have in the past life, but. Um, yeah, I was not expecting that, that call, let me put it that way. Even though I, I knew uh, Pradeep was uh, ready to uh, take on a different role in, in the company, which was publicly announced. Um, but because it was Juniper, it was actually a you know, fairly straightforward decision for me because A, I knew a um, lot of the folks here. So it did not feel like I'm coming to a completely new place. I've known the culture for a long time. It has always been driven by good, solid engineering. and ultimately products that win because it does better than the competition. Um, so I've always known the engineering ethos that, that Juniper has. And I, I had very uh, good understanding of the product portfolio that, that the company has, and also some sense of what the company is trying to go. But as I started talking to you know my now my peers, and of course Rami and, uh, and others, um, it became pretty clear where the company needs to go and wants to go, uh, which was really about being ahead of the cloud transformation. And it became pretty obvious why my experience is relevant, both from uh, as the largest hyperscalers are building the infrastructure, but more importantly, as service providers or enterprises are adopting cloud, either as part of their infrastructure or as a service that they want to offer. Right, um, so it became crystal clear why my experience is relevant to where Juniper is trying to go and how I can really drive that vision coming to the company, and, and that actually has been the case mm-hmm. since I joined. So once you, so you you understood, well, it was clear why they want you on board. Um, what about in terms of personal career growth? Um, sounds like perhaps it was a tough choice. You know, you you were a top networking guy at Google. Um, it doesn't exactly sound like an inferior option necessarily than being CTO at uh, number two or three um, uh, networking vendor in the market, depending on who you ask, uh, that's been, frankly, struggling to grow. Um, talk about that. To me, you know, any job is about uh, the, the new learnings that it brings with it and, and the new opportunities that it opens up, right? A- end of the day, um, you know, the, the Google is actually a, 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 an absolutely wonderful company to, to, uh, to work for. Um, I, I learned tremendous amount of uh, things about not just network, but distributed system, and building scale-out robust reliable system um, at, at Google, and, and worked with some amazing people uh, there over, over my career. Um, but what, what is really interesting about this job is at Google, you know, I had quite a few customers. Like my, my customers were Google Search, Google Ads, YouTube, Google Cloud, right? 
but they're all internal customers. Still it's still customer. basically ultimately one large customer with, with, you know, with some different uh, sets of needs, right? Uh, very complex sets of needs, but ultimately one customer. In some ways, it's also a very mature customer. Like it's a customer that ultimately knows what it wants, and, and so you have very different sets of conversations, right, when, you, when you're uh, having conversation with them. I come from product background, like that's what I've done before I joined Google. And I really was observing two things. One, you know, from building public cloud, I was observing how um, small, medium, and very large enterprises all, all alike, as well as service providers, they are trying to adopt cloud and cloud-native ways of building applications and services. And they all have goals that are driven by either applications or technology or financial goals that they need to get to a certain point in, within a certain period of time. And frankly, um, the industry hasn't made it easy for them to go there. And I, I saw this inside out from you know, the other side of the divide, which is you know, when you're building public cloud and you're trying to onboard somebody. Yeah, absolutely. Right, and it was crystal clear to me that there is a very large opportunity for somebody like Juniper, uh, where it already had a lot of te te technology assets, you know, be it you know, QFX, MX, SRX, or Contrail that it already had, um, to really simplify this experience. And, and you know, to me, the simplification is not putting things together. The simplification is, can you engineer a system where somebody, you know, they might be running a legacy infrastructure, you know, whether it's a service provider, and they're trying to virtualize, it cannot be a forklift upgrade. Like forklift doesn't work for almost anybody, right? If you're an enterprise and you're used to running, you know, let's say your legacy, you know, bare metal-based data center, or maybe you have, you know, some VM-based deployments, and you, you hear of, you know, the magical world of microservices, um, the option is not I completely drop everything that I ran on bare metal, right? And, and I just magically next day move to microservice. It doesn't work like that. Um, if you look at the solutions that are out, out there, um, they almost assume greenfield. Like you, you're forgetting whatever you had, you're building this new thing, the new thing is going to be amazing, somebody else deals with the legacy. Um, that's not reality, right? So I saw this opportunity, so it was a part of Learning directly from the CIOs, the CISOs, the, the network operators um, or the infrastructure operators firsthand, the set of problems that they're trying to solve and applying what I learned for 10 years uh, into solving that problem in a way that it doesn't discount the complexity that they have, but it tries to really understand the complexity and simplifies it, right? And I, I really view that as a, as a big opportunity for me personally, as a technologist, you know, from pure technology point of view, it's a very interesting challenge. As a matter of fact, if you think of um, what are the fundamental shifts that has happened in how people build infrastructure and network, um, there's some very fundamental points in, in the history, right? Um, going all packet was one of those fundamental shifts that happened 15 years back, and Juniper was at the forefront of that. Um, to a change to do going all STN uh, in, in terms of whether it's virtualized or, or in hardware, you know, that was sort of late 2000, early, you know, early uh, 20, you know, 2007 to 10, like that, that time frame. Um, many companies came out of that, Contrail being one of that. But in the last two decades, I think the most fundamental shift that has happened is cloud native infrastructure, whether that's running on your premise or whether it's running in public cloud, 
it's a very fundamental shift in how applications are built or consumed or how infrastructure is built or consumed. And this is a common challenge that every CIO, CISO, uh, you know, SVP of networking has around the world. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's again, the, uh, both the opportunity to go and, and crack a really hard problem with simplicity um, and, and to really have the ability to go and learn from the customers. Here are the real challenges that we're trying to, trying to solve and can we solve it in a better way? So, so that's the real attraction. And Juniper itself, a uh, couple of years ago, was facing these same challenges, right? I mean, there was a big move to a cloud-based yeah, uh, environment so, just for in internal systems. Yeah, so, so absolutely. Like, you know, I, I, interestingly enough, I spend a lot of time with our CIO. Uh, uh, Bob, who is a peer of mine, I spend a lot of time with him, and we have a strategy which we call Juniper on Juniper. Um, oftentimes, the first instance of a product that we build, it, it runs, uh, Juniper IT runs on that. Um, it's true with Juniper switches, Juniper firewalls, some of, one of the first Contrail deployment was on Juniper IT. Um, and Absolutely. I mean, you know, Juniper CIO is going through the exact same challenge that other CIOs have, where there are teams or applications that runs on, you know, AWS or, or some other public cloud. And in some ways, it's almost a shadow IT deployment where it's, it's hard for the IT department to keep up with. Do I have a policy implementation that I must have that protects the the public cloud infrastructure the same way that the internal infrastructure does? Do I have visibility end to end? Um, can I use this as a fungible infrastructure? So yeah, absolutely. Juniper has Juniper IT had to go through the same cloudification transition. Um, that those lessons learned are immensely helpful in in sort of understanding what others are going through, and in some ways. It allows us to try the solutions out on Juniper IT as we build them. And you've mentioned uh, a few months ago, um, I read an article, that uh, you were trying to build um, a pass a Juniper. Um, can you expand on that? What does it mean for a vendor like you guys to have yeah, a pass? Yeah. Uh, actually, that, that's a very good question. So of many things that I, that I learned uh, over, uh, you know, over a decade at, at Google and, and some of the things that Google or Microsoft or Amazon or the likes have done really well uh, in, in how they've built, most of them try to not build automation as either an afterthought or in a silo. So let me explain uh, to you what I mean by that. So if you look at Juniper competition, you'll find that when they talk about automation or orchestration, they have a solution for data center. They have a different solution for branch. They have a third solution for campus. They have a fourth solution for SD-WAN. They have a fifth solution for public cloud. So if you are the CIO, just as the Juniper CIO deals with, now you say, okay, somehow you glue this together by building an automation on top. And that never works. The reason it never works is because Every time you have this multiple hierarchical controller of controller, your chances of breaking things just goes up. It goes up exponentially. So what's the right way of building automation? The right way of building automation is you have to start with a common way of creating intent, and that intent should be done in a way that it doesn't matter whether you are configuring a physical data center fabric or a virtual overlay or an SD-WAN or uh, a node slicing in a physical router. It's the same intent. 
Um, it requires some pretty fundamental engineering of how the intent language is described so that you have this, this, this level of abstraction where you can do it. But why is that important? Once you have done that, then if you write automation for data center, it actually extends to campus. It extends to SD-WAN. It extends to other part of the, of the network. So you, you, the initial engineering has a cost, but it really pays off. You're not building five different things. You need to have a common way of st storing intent and configuration. And those configurations may be for a physical switch or a virtual firewall or an overlay. Um, you need to have a pluggable way of adding adapters for uh, compute, storage, physical network, virtual network, et cetera, et cetera, right? Uh, so the moment you start putting this together, very soon you'll be developing a set of libraries. And those libraries are common functions like inventory management, topology management, right? Uh, possibly some analytics functions that you build, like you'll have a, a set of libraries. If you have done this in a systematic way, once you have built these things, what you, are, what you have actually built for yourself is a pass. Because now you can run applications, where when you're running applications, you're not reinventing the wheel. You're leveraging the libraries, you're leveraging the intent model, you're leveraging the config models, you're leveraging the telemetry stack, right? There are many benefits that you get out of that. The first benefit that you get is that it's a common stack that you're leveraging across many domains, which means that this stack gets, is, is getting utilized so often that it is going to be robust. The second benefit that you get is, as for one application you improve the stack, it improves for everything else. So let me give you how, a concrete example of how, how we have done that. So the stack that we're building is actually built, is, is built on Contrail, so we're not starting from scratch. But Contrail originally started its life as an SDN uh, framework. It already had all these good, good uh, baseline building blocks. You know, good intent language, a good configuration data model, a good telemetry data model, uh, a plug-in model for, for doing element drivers. As we introduced physical network management on that, we just wrote element driver on this. And all of a sudden, we can do IP fabric in data center. We can do multi-cloud connectivity using overlay. We can do node slicing on an MX router which was never a control use case, but it uses the exact same in, in, in language. Um, we are doing end-to-end -end network slicing using the same thing. We can do peering automation using that. Um, writing application becomes much faster. And as, as, uh, as a customer of Juniper, when you are buying a stack, you know that next time you buy the next application, it's running on the same stack. So it is, it is guaranteed to work uh, with each other. It is, you don't need to build another layer on top to, to tie this together, right? Um, so that pass is actually real. As a matter of fact, as we launched Contrail Enterprise Multi-Cloud, it's built on that pass. We have launched a set of automation, we call them bots. So we have launched a bot called Health Bot and a bot called Slicing Bot. They're written on this pass. And we expect to write a lot more of, of this, of this uh, automation bots ourselves, but we also expect our customers to write their own bots mm -hmm. uh, because it's a pass. You can write, write on top of it. I see. You guys and, and your customers. Yeah. Um, so, and then how does that translate to being able to address uh, legacy yeah. while also you know, getting to this next stage? Yeah. Uh, maybe perhaps the reason uh, the competitors have a separate thing for everything is because of that legacy um, issue. So um, legacy is, is always a very interesting aspect. It, it sort of comes down to how far back in the history you're going to go to and try to automate it. And you can go pretty far, right? And my experience has always been that 
up to a certain point, it makes sense to go back. But beyond that point, if you try to automate something, you're actually going to spend more time and money on automation that, than, than the infrastructure that you have at that point, right? So, so either report replace or, or cap and grow, right? Just, just leave that infrastructure as is, and it, it does its natural depreciation, and at some point, you, you repeat out of the network, right? But typically, you need to go back you know, several years. Like You need to go back five to 10 years of, of infrastructure. You know, 20 years might be, might be a stretch, but there are, there are uh, actual deployments in service providers or enterprises where you have 10 plus years of legacy, right? Um, so if you're looking back, you need, to have a, you need to have solid enough support for things that you have deployed maybe over the last decade. And if you do the right level of modularity in how you write your drivers, it is possible. Um, I'll give you, again, concrete example. Um, for any of the modern switches or routers that, you know, either Juniper or competition, um, you, can, you can go and configure them declaratively, you know, NetConf, Yang, or, or other things, right? If you go back maybe you know, 10 years, um, it was harder. You had to script in, in, in the way that you configured the switches. If you have a modular driver, the driver underneath can still run a script that's going on upgrading the switch. But what it exposes to the, to, to the layer above that is the same normalized interface that you have with a modern switch, right? That's why writing the plugin is very important. That's why writing the right driver model is very important, and that's what we're doing. Uh, same thing with, you know, in the modern world, telemetry is streaming. Uh, in the old world, it was mostly SNMP. In fact, SNMP is the vast majority of how people do telemetry, right? So we support both. But by the time we collect the data and we present to applications, they're normalized, right? So the application doesn't have to worry about whether it came from you know, SNMP or new telemetry. So the normalizing layer is very important on both sides, uh, on both the configuration as well as the telemetry side. Um, so I mean, as you've mentioned already, hyperscalers have been a, a big disruptive force for everyone in the, in the data center market, including network vendors, um, partly because they open source a lot of the infrastructure innovation that they come up with. Um, what's, what's trickled down into the enterprise in the process? What are the biggest things? So if you look at the distribution of consumers of network or other infrastructure, uh, you approximately can you know, look at the distribution as on one extreme end, you have builders. On one extreme end, you have users and you have a lot of people in between, right? Um, and a lot of people started somewhere in the middle where it was a mix of you know, system integration with maybe some amount of architecture, but really putting it together with stuff that you buy from the market. And what you notice over time is that that distribution has shifted more towards the edge on both sides. So hyperscalers, the large public cloud builders or the content builders, you know, the Google, the Facebook, the Microsoft, the Amazon of the world, they're extreme builders. Right? They, they want to build things, and ultimately the reason they want to build things is because for them, their network or any other infrastructure, storage or compute, they have very specific use cases. And for those use cases, they want the most optimization that they can get out of the infrastructure that they're building. And the way you get that is by having direct software control on what the underlying infrastructure is doing. So what they're looking for is ultimately, you know, there are, people use different terminology, but really, if you break it down, they're looking for disaggregation. What does that mean? It means that let me pick the part of the infrastructure that buying is the easiest thing for me to do, 
And for the rest, I need complete hook for programming the infrastructure that I bought. Now, it varies between them. Like for some, it is white box. For some, it is, uh, it is switches or routers from companies like ourselves with deep API for doing data plane, P4 as, as a support or control plane or management plane even, right? Um, but what they really are looking for is control. How do I have control on the infrastructure that I'm deploying, right? On the other end, you have users, right? Now, in, in maybe a decade or so back, most enterprises were somewhere in between, where they would buy subsystems and they would system integrate them. And there are a lot of companies that did system integration. And, um, and they, you know, depending on the size of the enterprise, it moved to more of the build side or more on, on, the, you know, on the use side, right? Most of the enterprises are moving more towards the use side, whether it is in the way of directly consuming public cloud, which is an, a perfect example of just consuming the resource, right? You're not building. Or uh, the IT teams building internal infrastructure in a way that it almost presents itself like a cloud. Um, so, so how you use it, right? So for that use cases, um, they need, they're not interested ultimately in the subsystems. They're interested in a fully orchestrated, fully automated system, which is, which is ready for them to deploy in a way that their users can start consuming. Um, so uh, interestingly, if you look at more and more enterprise infrastructure, they, they start looking a lot more like public cloud infrastructure in smaller size in some cases, but they're built differently because they don't have the same development team or the same operations team that an Amazon or a Microsoft or a Google has. They don't have the army of software engineers that, that these companies have, right? So the ask that I always hear, you know, I talk to a lot of CIOs um, of the Fortune 500 companies, and you know, there is one common ask that I always get, which is, I'm not interested in what my peer is doing in the other Fortune 500 company. Tell me how I build an infrastructure that looks like a Google's or a Microsoft's or an Amazon's or a Facebook. And the answer that I would always have is, yes, you can build an infrastructure like that, but be careful with how you're building it because it's almost always people process technology and the people and the process that you have are very different from the people and the process that an Amazon or, or, or Microsoft has, right? And that's where I see opportunity for Juniper, right? Where I can build you an infrastructure that looks like a hyperscaler infrastructure. That's all Contrail Enterprise Multi-Cloud is about. That's all, um, you know, when we're doing uh, telco, STN, or NFVI platforms, that's all they're about, right? But you are not forced to build it from scratch. You actually can buy quite a significant part of it that is already uh, built as a system, tested as a system, scales out, is proven to be, uh, uh, to be scaled out. And in some cases, we can even help you build and operate uh, the infrastructure that you're building, but you get all the benefits of having your own infrastructure at that point, right? Um, so so that, that's sort of how I categorize the two use cases that you see. Okay, and then um, maybe more granularly, um, in the networking, in the data center network space specifically, what kinds of technologies would you think um, have come into the enterprise from that hyperscale innovation yeah. that, have, that have been important in the enterprise? Yeah. So the biggest change that you see in enterprise data center space is that um, IP fabric or overlap as fabric for data center architecture is becoming the norm. You know, this, this, was, this, this really came from hyperscalers, right? Where you know, I, I worked on one of the first very large 
uh, data center fabric, uh, very large data center fabric um, that that uh, that was ever built. You know, this was Google's Jupiter, right? And if you look at how most data centers are deploying things like EVP and VXLAN fabric. Um, Architecturally, they're very similar. They're scale out, they are two or three stage glow, um, and the moment that you start building it that way, uh, you cannot configure each of the switch individually. You have to configure them with automation. Uh, you need an orchestration because you're trying to do overlay. More and more enterprises are relying on host-based overlays as well uh, for, for, again, uh, doing things like micro-segmentation, for doing multi-tenancy, for isolation. Also something that is widely used in, in the hyperscaler space, and it's, it's, it's coming into enterprise space quite widely. Uh, in terms of switches and, and the types of switches that are being used, uh, you, you also see a similar, uh, similar direction there. Although um, in the case of enterprise, you know, the types of features and functions that you need on the switches are typically a lot more than what you need in hyperscalers for many reasons. Uh, including enterprises actually manage a lot more complex infrastructure than hyperscalers do. Uh, hyperscalers actually tend to have fairly homogeneous infrastructure with very tight control on what they run, right? Um, as a CIO, you often don't have that luxury because you have to run, you know, 500 or 5,000 different applications with different requirements. So the requirements that comes into the, the switching of the routing devices are more complex. Um, but the architectures are starting to look very similar with scale out. And um, what's been the effect of open source network hardware, primarily OCB, uh, on the data center network market? Yeah, I mean, so so I think uh, you know the way uh, I I view open source. By the way, uh, Juniper loves open source. Like as you know, our Contrail product family is completely open source in Linux Foundation under Tungsten Fabric. Um, we, we actively participate in large open source projects. For example, WNF, we are, we're, we're a platinum member uh, for WNF. Uh, we are actively contributing code into P4, which is one of the new open source um, data plane interface that is opening up. Um, my view of open source is the following. Open source is a really good thing in, in the way that you, you get a, a de facto standard that you can build product around because, you know, it, the moment that a code is open source, you not only have the interfaces that are well-defined, you have the data models and the APIs that are well-defined, right? So ultimately, it's a good thing for the industry because you, what has really happened is, you know, a lot of standardization still happens in places like IEEE or ITF or 3GPP, but a lot of the standardizations are now happening in Linux Foundation, for example, right? In, in the way that open source, open source is being used. Now, there is a difference between a software that is in open source and a software that is written based on open source that can be run and in production scale. And typically, if you look at the history of open source, uh, those who are ultimately developing uh, software, they can leverage open source heavily and develop on top. And those who are consuming software, they ended up buying a software that is robust, that is built around open source. Um, the example would be, you know, an enterprise, when they buy Linux, they typically buy an enterprise Linux from somewhere. Um, when uh, Amazon or a Facebook or a Google use Linux, they would use the Linux kernel and they would build on top, right? The consumption model is very different. It's the, again, same, you know, user versus builder uh, dichotomy that you have, right? So in the case of enterprises, open source gives them a set of well-defined uh, interfaces that guarantees interoperability. 
In the case of hyperscalers, open source gives them in many ways ability to build directly on top of what's in there, right? And that is different from you know, white box as a conversation. Because white box is, is more of, do I have features and functions that I can run on commodity silicon? And if I have features and functions that I can run on commodity silicon, then, well, that's good enough. Why do I need something else, right? So we take the same approach. Like if, if there is a feature or function, let's say I'm doing a data center tour, right? If I'm going to use the same silicon that somebody who is building white box is building, my switch as a hardware is not that different from what that other switch is. So we widely use ODM for, for this approach, right? What, what I bring to the table is I'm going to build a set of APIs, whether that's data plane, you know, open flow or P4 or control plane, or you know, this would be the example would be uh, we natively support Facebook's open R protocol in, in our in, in Junos natively, right? Or whether or, or we're a big supporter of Sonic. We support Sai as an interface. Um, we support Sonic. Sonic is the Microsoft. It's the Microsoft interface, right? Uh, we are a big supporter of, of, of that interface. Um, we natively support those APIs. Like once you natively support those APIs, it comes down to the quality of the software that you offer. And we believe that you know, the quality of the software that we offer, you will be comfortable running a production infrastructure on top of. You know, that may not be the case with other options that you have. And so Sonic and OpenR, and you guys natively support those too, is that to make sure that, that you can still have Microsoft and Facebook as customers, or do you see uh, those uh, being adopted elsewhere? So uh, we definitely see those being adopted outside of, of those that you mentioned, for sure. Um, you know, uh, our, our view is that, you know, again, um, you know, when BGP first came out, right, uh, BGP did not interoperate with, with multiple vendors implementation. Now it has become uh, a standard that is so widely adopted that, you know, you saw that's the baseline expectation that it, it would, right? Many of these standards are in their early days. And if you don't participate in the way that the standards are being built, and, and I'm going to call them standard broadly because open source is a de facto standard, right? Um, as they're being built, it is important to participate because you want to ensure that it is covering broader use cases for the future. It, you are building, your Juniper is building the software stack internally that is built in a way that you can support multiple of these interfaces, right? Um, and the only way you do that is by participating. You actually cannot guarantee that without participating. Uh, and we definitely see uh, a broader consumption than just the ones that are starting uh, these initiatives. But I, I, it's still early days. Uh, I, I, I don't know how it will shape up going forward. I actually hope that it becomes a very vibrant community, whether it's you know, uh, P4 or uh, Sonic or OpenR or other such interfaces that comes in. And uh, what about, again, op open source hardware, um, like what Facebook's been open sourcing with the Wedge and the, the six-pack platform? And is that, has that have had a, uh, a powerful enough impact to where Juniper has to um, address it somehow. So, so frankly, um, we we haven't seen uh, an an impact where uh, somebody was replacing a Juniper hardware with an open source hardware. However, there is a positive impact that we have seen, which is there are ODMs who are building, uh, you know, uh, something like OCP best ODM solutions for switches, and we consume them. They're great because you know you basically you know once these hardwares are built you know they're built around a set of spec and you know that 
with that spec, it's going to work in a set of data center environment and use cases, right? And like I said before, if an ODM is able to build a hardware uh, with a merchant silicon, um, that hardware has not that much of a difference of the same hardware built by Juniper. So I would much rather buy it, and I would provide the value that Juniper provides, right? So, which is in the, which is in the software, in, in that case, in those use cases, right? But there are a lot more complex use cases where you need the silicon to support the complex use case. That's why our MX Universal Routing Platform shines, right? Because if you're trying to do you know, large-scale data plane security acceleration or offload, you can do that in merchant silicon. Um, so there we have, we add value in, in hardware, and that's where we build our own chip, right? But where the chip is a merchant silicon where there is no value that Juniper would add by building hardware, um, actually open source hardware is good. I mean, there are ODMs that are building uh, to that. Um, so in the last four or five quarters have been pretty rough for Juniper. Um, what's been causing that in your understanding and what's your guys' plan for returning to growth? Yeah. Uh, so so few things uh, have happened which are, you know, which are happening uh, kind of at the same time. And it has happened kind of at the same time. Um, the first one is, you know, in, in general, we have seen a decline in service provider market. And this is a global phenomenon, you know, and almost anybody who sells to service provider, maybe excluding China, you, you see this, this effect, you know, globally. And we see it, and all of our peers see it when, when, when you sell to service provider. Um, uh, Juniper still has a large chunk of business that is service provider business, right? And of course, we see direct impact of that. Um, but what Juniper did very early on and, and has done very well is Juniper saw the growth of public cloud provider actually ahead of almost any of Juniper competition, long time back. Um, Juniper built the PTX platform, for example, which was almost directly targeted towards uh, solving large hyperscaler providers problem, which is very different from service providers, right? When they were in the business of carrying lots of bits that are all packets in a very efficient way with a set of functions that you need, and PTX was built specifically for that, right? And it has done very well in hyperscale space as a, as a result of that. And, you know, if you look at the market analysis, Juniper owns, you know, very large chunk of the hyperscaler WAN. Um, and that business as a port growth has been growing very, uh, very uh, comfortably in, in terms of the deployment footprint and the port growth, right? But the real big change that has happened is when many of these hyperscalers originally built their network maybe 10 years back, um, they were built with MX, which is the carrier class platform that, that Juniper uh, builds, right? And most of them have gradually migrated towards PTX for good reason, because that's how PTX was built. And you know, Juniper as a company made the decision to effectively disrupt itself because it knew if it did not, somebody else would. Right? So, that, so it is important that the footprint remain Juniper footprint, just that it was built with a lot more efficient hardware. Right? Um, if you look at the ASPs of MX and, and PTX, there is quite significant difference between MX and PTX. So even though the growth of PTX has been very healthy in, in the uh, cloud space, it was the rate at which people are moving from MX to PTX, and therefore the ASP decline on an average basis that, that Juniper saw. And that was going on uh, very actively throughout 2017. So the first quarter, I believe, of 2017, you know, about something around, and we, we, we have that in our quarterly earning calls, you can go back and check, like about 40% um, of the shipped ports were uh, PTX, 
in, in the cloud space. About 60% were MX. In 18Q1, about 80% of the ship, ship ports are PTX, about only 20% is MX. So we're not completely done with the transition, but we're mostly done with the transition. And we see healthy growth of PTX ports. Um, so we're actually pretty comfortable that we're going to see you know, the cloud business coming up into where it's going to be growing in terms of revenue. It has always been growing on port count. It's going to be uh, growing on revenue. Uh, that leads us to two other things. One is, in an enterprise, we actually have a healthy business, and, and it has been growing, and it has been growing at a healthy, healthy clip, but we're investing heavily into enterprise, as you know, from our recent, recent announcements, uh, be it on enterprise data center, or enterprise multi-cloud solutions, or enterprise analytics and telemetry, um, or SD-WAN for solving branch. Uh, enterprise is a big focus for the company, and it's also a big growth area for, for the company going forward. Last but not the least, we are laser focused on hyperscaler data center. Now we have presence in hyperscaler data center, uh, but we don't yet have as wide presence as we have in hyperscaler WAN and DCI. Um, and there are many reasons for that, and one of the reasons being many of the hyperscalers build these things with uh, white box switches, and many of them are actually going back into build versus buy, and the TCO computation where if you support this right APIs, then I don't need to build this. I'm going to buy this. And of course, you know, there is a price uh, consideration there uh, at the end of the day. But it's a pretty open space for Juniper to, to go and, 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 uh, and go after, right? And, and so that's, that's another big focus of the company. So yes, 2017 was rough, and 2017 was rough for this combination of SP market decl decline and cloud going to the architectural transformation. Uh, we did not lose market share in either of those places. Um, in fact, we have grown market share in both those places. Uh, it is really a function of, you know, now we feel where we see the light at the end of the tunnel. And uh, hyperscalers are taking another look at, um, at their strategy for you know, build versus buy for networking. Absolutely. And what's causing that? Is that because the vendors now have actually the APIs they need? Yeah, I mean, I, I can tell you from my experience, like when, when I first built, uh, you know, my, the team in Google, they built the first data center fabric. Well, you couldn't buy switches that had these APIs. You just couldn't, right? So your only option was to build it. There was no other option. Uh, the reason that you see things like Sonic, OpenR, you know, Google Stratum project uh, are, are because uh, they're actually looking for a standard interface, right? And once that interface is standardized, it doesn't really matter uh, whether you build. And, and Look, ultimately building, I, I have built hardware for a long time uh, in my past life. Uh, building hardware is expensive. I mean, there is no shortcut to engineering, right? You know, software is not free. Um, it, it costs money to have good software engineers, whether Juniper has it or a hyperscaler has it or an enterprise has it, right? So end of the day, it comes down to who can amortize the development cost the most. And if you start doing that economics, like it becomes pretty obvious, right? So. Um, we already see that flip happening in, in that space. And Juniper's been talking a lot about autonomous or self-driving networks lately um, that tune themselves as needed. Um, can you explain the concept a bit more? Is that the same as like the automation that you're talking about? Uh, so our automation is absolutely targeted towards autonomous network. But let me walk you through um, the difference between an automated and an autonomous network, right? So. 
if you look at the degree of automation, like, and if you look at the sort of the history of it, right, it started with human driven, where a human would basically tell, I want my infrastructure to do this, that, and other, right? From that, it ended up being automated, but automated in, in the form where the human still described what the network needs to do, and an automation translated what the human described and turned that into, you know, this is the configuration that you do in the switches, right? That is approximately what autonomous or, uh, that is approximately what automated or even intent-driven network is, where the human is telling this is the intended state and the software is helping you to break that down into small pieces of configuration that you then push into the devices, right? In autonomous network, it's a closed loop system, right? Where ultimately the human is not involved other than basically saying, you know, here is sort of the, the how the infrastructure looks like. Make it work, right? And what that means is that you need the ability to have deep visibility into the network. You need to have deep telemetry. You need to have the ability to consume and process that information in real time. And based on what you see from the network, you, you need to be able to go and do something. So if you're seeing a part of the network is going down or, or is, getting, is starting to degrade, then you should be able to detect that automatically. And then based on the detection, you should be able to craft what you need to do as a reaction and then apply that, right? So it's the closed loop system. Um, Closed loop system is actually the most difficult and most complex part of a phase of, of an automated network. Uh, because not only do you need the ability to do very complex analysis of a lot of data real time, and this is where machine learning and AI comes into play. Uh, this is what we uh, do with our Formix portfolio, where we have the ability to consume massive amount of real-time data and run massive amount of uh, machine learning uh, and, and, uh, and continuous learning algorithms on them uh, to create very high-quality signal. And the high-quality signal is important because if you're self-healing or self-remediating what has happened in the network, you better have very, very high level of, uh, of fidelity in the signal that you're using, right? Uh, you don't want false positives or false negatives. Um, so this is sort of the end state of how network infrastructure should become. Um, there are some early implementations of that. As a matter of fact, Juniper has few customers who have done early implementation of some of this. Um, but this is a very uh, fascinating area for networking, and we're going to go there. I mean, it has to happen because network operations is too expensive, right? So the only way that you ultimately reduce cost is not just CapEx. I mean, ultimately, it's the day-to-day -day operations cost, right? And autonomous sort of gets you there. Pikash, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. I really appreciated the conversation.